Uh, in today's Q&A, we have uh, Sister Israt from Australia uh, emailing and saying that how do we understand the hadith regarding uh, the prohibition of plucking of the eyebrows and the fact that Allah's curse is on this? And is there any exception for this rule? وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ إِلَّا رِجَالًا نُوحِي إِلَيْهِمْ فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ so this hadith uh, or this uh, question actually, uh, I'm actually going to spend uh, a good amount of time discussing it, not because of the issue itself, but we're going to use this as a case study because it's very important that we understand some of the reasons why our scholars uh, differ. And uh, so today I will actually be going into a lot of detail to demonstrate uh, the fact that uh, different scholars have different ways of approaching the tradition. And inshallah ta'ala, whichever position that you follow, there should be an understanding and an acceptance and a respect and a tolerance for other opinions out there. Uh, the hadith in question uh, is a hadith that is mentioned or narrated by Ibn Mas'ud and it is reported in Bukhari and Muslim uh, and uh, it is a much uh, longer hadith but the key phrase in it is that Ibn Mas'ud reported that the Prophet وسلم, said uh, that uh, he cursed la'ana Rasulullah al-washimat wal-mustawshimat wal-namisat wal-mutanamisat that the Prophet وسلم, uh, cursed uh, the uh, ladies that put on markings or tattoos and the ones that ask for these tattoos to be put on and the ones who anamisat and namisat uh, we'll just translate it for now as the plucking of the eyebrows we're going to come back to this translation wal mutanamisat those ladies that ask for uh, their eyebrows to be uh, uh, to be uh, plucked uh, those that change the creation of Allah. Al-Mughayyiratu Khalqallah, they're changing the creation of Allah. And uh, the, uh, the the la'na or the, the curse uh, uh, has been mentioned in this case uh, from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, la'na Rasulullah. And then uh, it has also been narrated is la'na Allahu, Allah Himself has uh, cursed. So both of these narrations are found and it is an authentic hadith because it is mentioned in the Sahihain. Now, um, as I said today, I'm actually going to go into quite a, a, a lot of detail because uh, I really want to use this as a case study so that we broaden our horizons and so that we understand why and how we, uh, our scholars have uh, looked at these texts and why there is a spectrum of opinion. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, what we see is that really, and again I'm being uh, a little bit simplistic for now, in a nutshell we see that there's different ways or paradigms to look at these traditions. Uh, and we can say for the purposes of our talk today that uh, we can categorize the scholars who looked at this tradition into two categories. Uh, the first category were those who took it at face value, who took it at its literal value and they didn't really think about the causes or the concerns or the reasons behind this tradition and they simply took this and that's a valid paradigm and they applied it uh, without any uh, you know uh, conditions without any circumstance it is applied unconditionally across the board and this is the position that uh, is well known and you will find this uh, very common on most uh, uh, Q&A websites that answer Islam uh, Islamic questions and other you know uh, you know scholars of that are uh, you know well established on social media and, and well known it's very common to hear this position that it is completely unconditional and there are no exceptions and at the same time you have another group of scholars um, from the beginning of time who looked at these traditions and they tried to understand 
understand, well, uh, what is the cause or what is the reason such that we will apply this hadith when that cause exists. When the reason is the same, we will apply that hadith. But when the reason does not exist, then maybe the hadith or the ruling uh, narrated in this hadith is not going to apply. And in fact, um, you see this, this, uh, this tension, you see these two different paradigms, you see it even from the beginning of time. In fact, you see it in the famous incident of the Sahaba themselves, uh, when the Prophet Sallallahu uh, told the Sahaba to pray Salat al-Asr uh, in the place or the lands of the Banu Quraydah. Now, this is a very interesting hadith that really demonstrates this, uh, I don't want to call it tension because the Sahaba did not quite have a tension amongst them, but it is a tension of understanding. There wasn't an actual tension between them, there was a tension of understanding. And it's a very, very eye-opening episode in the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ that demonstrates that texts can be understood differently. And the question of how literal do you want to be or how much rationale do you want to be, that this is actually, it's a very natural tension. There's nothing un-Islamic, there's nothing modernistic, there's nothing that goes against our Iman in Allah and His Messenger. Both of these camps equally believe in Allah and His Messenger and we find them amongst the Sahaba. Now, uh, what is this story? And it is a very important story. The story is that, or the, uh, the incident is that, uh, the day that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the same day that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala miraculously uh, caused the confederates to uh, uh, scatter, helter-skelter, the army of the confederates, the battle of the Ahzab, right? As you know, that sandstorm came and the morning that they woke up and they prayed Salat al-Fajr and lo and behold, the entire camps have cleared. 10,000 have disappeared, mashallah, tabarakallah, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has miraculously destroyed or sent the winds and caused them to disperse. So the Sahaba came back elated, overjoyed, and they took their armor off and they went back home. After one month of a siege, obviously they need to relax, they need to recover, they need to recuperate. Now Jibreel came to the Prophet ﷺ and he said to the Prophet ﷺ, if you have taken your armor off, realize the angels have not taken their armors off, we still have to deal with the treachery of the Banu Quraydah. Now there was a treacherous incident that they betrayed the Muslims, backstabbed the Muslims, and they needed to be dealt with that. Had it not been for the miracle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the treachery of the Banu Quraydah might have been fatal for the entire community. So those traitors have to be dealt with. So Jibreel came and said to the Prophet sallallahu we have not taken our armors off, we have to deal with those people. And therefore, the Prophet sallallahu wore his armor again and he went out and he prayed Salat al-Dhuhr. Okay, keep the chronology in mind. He prayed the Dhuhr prayer and he announced to the gathering, that basically hurry up, go back home, change your into your, 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 your military gear again, and then hasten to get to the lands of the Banu Quraydah, which was around an, uh, two hours, let's say a walk, or two hours from the masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he gave that command, لا يصلين أحدكم العصر إلا في Bani Quraydah. None of you should pray the Asr prayer until you get to the Banu Quraydah. Okay, you understand what's going on. He's prayed Dhuhr Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and he's basically saying, get to Banu Quraydah before Salat al-Maghrib. I want you to pray your Asr, do not pray Asr with me. Do not pray Asr in your homes. Get back home, hasten up, 
arm yourself back, get onto your, your camels and your horses, and you march to the Banu Quraida, such that the goal being, you arrive there before Salat al-Maghrib, so you will pray Asr in Banu Quraida, and then we will deal with the traitors. Now, the announcement was made, and it caused a little bit of a panic and chaos. People have to go home and tell their families and pack, and you know, everything has to happen. And by the time, so the Prophet immediately left. Like he's ready, he's already put, put his armor, him and his entourage, they have left, and they're gonna get to the Banu Qurayla way before the rest. And he's waiting for the rest of them to come. Now, what happens? So, the, the batch that leaves, right, they leave too late. They leave too late. They weren't able to get ready, they weren't prepared. It took a while, I mean, it's understandable, it took a while. Uh, and so by the time they leave, it's already past Asr time. It's already past Asr. And they're going towards the Banu Quraida, and the sun is about to set. And they're not going to catch the Maghrib Salah, uh, sorry, the Asr Salah, uh, if they delay it all the way to the Banu Quraida, okay? So understand what's going on here. Let me give you a hypothetical example. Suppose the sunset was at 6 p.m., let's say, right? And they would arrive at 7 p.m. It's already 5.30, and there is no way that they're going to be able to uh, pray Asr uh, unless they delay it, right? So now they have a clash. What should they do? Should they take the verbatim, literal meaning of the hadith. Do not pray Asr until you reach Banu Quraydah. And so they will watch the sunset and they will not stop for Salah. And they will allow the Asr to become Qada, right? Because the Prophet said, do not pray Asr until you get to Banu Quraydah. Or do they understand the rationale? Do they understand that, you know, what was intended was to hurry up and to make haste and to try to get there before Asr. Now that we were not able to do that, well then obviously we should pray Asr now and then we'll pray Maghrib when we get to the Banu Quraida. You understand this, I hope inshallah, the two scenarios, right? Once again, the issue is how literal do you want to be? Do you want to take it at face value or will you understand the rationale and then where the rationale does not exist, you will not apply the ruling. So the Sahaba began to talk amongst themselves. One group said, he said, we should only pray Asr in Banu Quraida, therefore we're not going to pray Salat al-Asr right now, we're going to watch the sunset, and we have the opportunity to pray, but we are obeying the Messenger وسلم, and we're gonna get to the Banu Quraida, and we will pray Asr after Maghrib time, right? We'll pray Asr after Maghrib time. We're gonna pray Asr, and then we're gonna pray Maghrib. And the other group said, no, but that's not the intent, that's not the goal, you know, that's not the, 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 the point of saying this, and there is a rationale, and now that that rationale is not being met, we're supposed to pray Asr, and then work our way there. Guess what happened? The Sahaba could not figure out amongst themselves one united plan, and therefore, some groups of people decided to not pray Asr and they continued uh, marching onwards, delaying Asr until after Maghrib. And another group, they stopped and they prayed Asr right then and there. And they finished Asr and they prayed it on time and then they marched onwards. When both groups arrived, the Prophet ﷺ rebuked neither of them. He did not make this an issue. It was not something that was a big deal. Oh my God, you guys are following the Sunnah against the Sunnah. No, the both of them tried their best and the both of them examined the tradition and they reached different views. Now, this same, if you like, tension uh, in terms of understanding the text, the same tension, it has trickled down to many of our rulings as well. 
okay? The same philosophy of, okay, should we just take this and then verbatim apply it, which is what, you know, many uh, groups do, or should we think about the rationale? And the, the issue comes, of course, uh, you know, my position is that, uh, the, that both of these groups are, alhamdulillah, respected ulama, and that we should at least allow them to discuss and engage. Uh, the main issue comes, unfortunately, which is I am opposed to this, is that one of these two strands, one of these two paradigms has essentially taken over or eclipsed, if you like, the fatwa scene, and uh, especially social media, especially, you know, Islam websites that are answering Q&A about Islam, these types of websites, they, they give uh, positions that they are respected in their own, in their own mind. But what has happened is that a, 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 a very literal sense comes that does not allow for any type of thinking through, any type of rationale. And in fact, uh, even some of those scholars of that trend themselves have criticized others. Uh, one of my own teachers, Sheikh Ibn Uthaymin, Allah Arhamu, that he would say many times, he would publicly complain about the rise of literalism, the Zahirism is called Zahiriyya, the rise of literalism and the diminishing of fiqh of understanding. And the problem comes, the issue is not that one group holds this. The issue is that unlike the Sahaba who allowed for two opinions, this group does not allow the possibility of any other view being legitimate. And this is really the problem. The problem of intolerance. The problem of if you don't agree with my literalism, you are rejecting the sunnah. You are against the sunnah and therefore you are somebody who is going to be doomed or la'natullah or something of this nature. And another major problem that comes is that this group, even though they're small and they're relatively modern despite the fact they claim to go back uh, to the earliest of times. The fact is that undeniably that they jump over, they bypass, bypass 14 centuries of uh, scholarship and they restrict the understanding of Islam to a small group of modern scholars of one particular land, of one particular mindset that are self-replicating their own views over and over again. And the problem is not in them holding the views, that's perfectly fine. The problem is them imposing that one view on the entire globe such that anybody who contradicts their narrative is deemed to be uh, somebody who is billah, against the sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, and this is extremism and this is a type of narrow-mindedness and dangerous uh, mentality that in fact does cause uh, a fanaticism and it does lead to many problems of the, uh, of the ummah. And the, uh, the net result therefore of all of this is that you do get a group of people that are very literalist, very, uh, you know, very committed and dedicated to the interpretations of their ulama, and anybody who disagrees with them is deemed to be not worthy of their love or attention, and this is not good for the uh, ummah. And one of the main points in me going into this detail and talking about all of this, and in fact my entire philosophy when I do these Q&A is to preach tolerance and respect of our tradition. I might have my views and I may maybe will try to prove my views, you know, you know, in, with passion, but if respected ulama have other views, alhamdulillah, no problem, that's their, uh, you know, uh, uh, methodology in ijtihad and Allah Azza wa Jal reward them for their uh, sincerity. Now, with all of this was a prelude to this question because again, you have to understand that this group of scholars, because of socio-political factors, economic factors, they do dominate uh, the waves, if you like. They dominate social media, they dominate, they have influenced 
modern discourse to the point that many uh, Muslims don't really even know that this is a very small minority. And we have, alhamdulillah, a very uh, beautiful heritage and history of Islamic scholarship. So today, I will demonstrate for you that in fact, there have been diverse opinions from the very beginning of time. And the greatest ulama have actually uh, uh, given exceptions to this hadith. It's nothing that is new that is, that is coming here. So we look first and foremost at the evidence and uh, how it was understood in the earliest of times. Now, in this particular case, Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu an, uh, the one who narrated the hadith, it is very clear that he uh, would not allow his own women to uh, practice this, uh, these types of things. And so he was of those basically saying, the hadith says it, let's, let's, let's just practice it. Interestingly enough, Aisha, our mother radiallahu anha, she's also one of the narrators of this hadith. She's also narrating this hadith as well in one of the versions. And yet we have reported from her that she would allow women to pluck hair from their faces. So again, very interesting over here. Uh, it is reported uh, in a number of early books, including uh, the book of uh, uh, the Kitab of Abu Yusuf, the student of Abu Hanifa, and also Ibn Battal, the commentary of Al-Bukhari, he mentions this, uh, that uh, Abu Ishaq mentions that my wife visited Aisha radiallahu anha, and she asked her, and my wife was uh, a lady who loved to beautify herself, right? So Abu Ishaq is narrating this, that my wife was a lady who loved to beautify herself. We were newly married, she's a young lady, she wants to beautify her love, herself. And she asked Aisha radiallahu anha that uh, is it permissible for a woman to pluck her eyebrows? And Aisha, our mother, says, You may remove anything that irritates you. You don't like it as much as you want, right? You may beautify yourself as much as you want. It is also reported in the Musannaf Abd al-Razzaq, that a woman was with Aisha radiallahu anha and she said, O Umm al-Mu'mineen, o, o mother of the believers, there are hairs in my face that I don't like. May I uh, pluck them in order to beautify myself for my husband. And Aisha once again said to her that you may get rid of anything that irritates you and uh, prepare for your husband as you prepare when guests come to visit you. When other ladies come and you make yourself look good, so then you should prepare yourself for your husband as well. In other words, you know, when you have visitors and guests coming, uh, ladies are coming to visit you, then you will look, you know, dignified and nice and whatnot. So Aisha radiallahu anha is saying that yes, of course you make yourself look good and you beautify yourself for your husband. Now, here we have uh, a very important, if you like, uh, uh, two different paradigms from the very beginning. That Ibn Mas'ud would not allow his own wives to do any of these things. And he is taking the, basically the, the literal version, which is completely allowed, as we said. This is something that does exist from the time of the Sahaba. And we have Aisha radiallahu anha, and she is the lady, by the way. And she should know better. And she is the one, This the, 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 the rulings are pertaining to her radiallahu anha, that she is giving this fatwa, that the lady is literally saying that I want to uh, uh, basically uh, shave off or, or trim uh, my eyebrows, am I allowed to do that? And she is saying, you may uh, do that. So we find this tension, if you like, again, from the, there was no tension between Aisha and Ibn Masood, but I'm saying the tension in understanding this uh, narration. Also, from the earliest of times, a number of our scholars were wondering that the hadith here, we do need to think about, this is a, um, 
overall, it's something that uh, would not be considered, let's say, uh, if the hadith had not come uh, about eyebrows, that generally speaking, nobody would assume this to be a sin. Yani you beautify yourself. A woman is allowed to uh, shave any body hair she wants. In fact, she is, uh, she is mandated to shave, as you know, certain parts of her body, the man and the woman, and she may keep her hair as long or as short as she wants. She may put on any type of bangles or beautification for her husband, dress up for her husband. So the question about the la'na of Allah coming upon something like an eyebrow, right? And generally speaking, Allah's la'na is a very, very big deal. Allah's la'na is huge. Allah Azza wa Jal, his, his la'na is upon those who reject Him. His la'na is upon the idol worshippers. His la'na is upon uh, the one who murders. It's in the Quran, right? That the one who murders, that uh, Allah's la'na is on him. So if you look at the sins that Allah has given the la'na, these are major sins. Now, to add eyebrows to the list, one wonders what is going on, and I'm not the first one to wonder. Uh, you have, for example, the famous, the great Alim al-Qarafi, uh, one of the great ulama of the Maliki Madhab. He writes in his book, Al-Zakhira, that he mentions this hadith, and uh, he says that, you know, uh, I haven't seen uh, the scholars of the Malikis and the Shafi'is discussing the reasons or the causes of why there is la'na in this uh, in this uh, situation. I don't understand why, because uh, he says that I understand that if this is a woman who is deceiving her uh, other people in order to basically uh, pretend that she is somebody that's more beautiful than she is, when the suitor comes, when somebody proposes for her, then uh, I understand. However, if it is for the wife, for her husband, then there is no uh, deception going on. And so he's like questioning that, what is this? How can we understand the, uh, the la'na? And another great uh, scholar of our tradition, uh, the great Mufassir Ibn Ashur. Ibn Ashur uh, wrote one of the most uh, original and amazing commentaries of the Quran uh, called Tahrir and uh, Tahrir wa Tanweer. Ibn Ashur, he writes that, as for this hadith of Allah's la'na on, on, these, on these categories of women, he says, فَمِمَّا أَشْكَلَ uh, it is something that is difficult to interpret or understand. Like, I don't understand why there's la'na on these uh, things. And he says, the only interpretation that I find to be uh, reasonable is that these characteristics were the characteristics of the ladies of ill repute, i.e. the prostitutes of that time, the ladies of ill repute of that time, and they would use these characteristics uh, to advertise their profession that way. And uh, 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 the, the, uh, the famous scholar Ibn Ashur, he says that even if the Sharia were to forbid these things for whatever reasons, it should not reach the level of la'an in and of itself. This is Ibn Ashur saying here. So he is basically saying that the reason why these things have been prohibited is that in those days when a lady practice that evil uh, profession, in order to advertise that she is that type of lady, she would have certain characteristics, and of them is that she would remove her eyebrows, let's say, or of them is that she would do the other things mentioned in this hadith, and therefore it now makes sense. Allah's la'na is on those ladies that are uh, selling themselves to this matter because obviously that is destroying society, destroying the moral fabric of society. That now we, we understand the la'na coming because the la'na is not on plucking a hair. The la'na will be on uh, the, 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 the women that are doing that for the sake of this 
evil uh, you know, profession. So uh, this is something that Tahir ibn Ashur says. And uh, Ibn al-Jawzi also mentions a similar comment. The famous Hanbali scholar Ibn al-Jawzi, he also mentions something similar in this regard. And therefore we find these ulama, they're trying to rationalize like, why is this uh, thing that, uh, that um, uh, has been prohibited? Again, like Ibn Ashur said, if Allah had made it haram, we understand, okay, his haram, it's his right to make it haram, nobody can question. But then one wonders, something like this, to have the la'na on it, what is causing the la'na? That must be something more than just plucking the eyebrow. And that's why these ulama say that the interpretation is that the la'na was for this profession and these characteristics were symbolic of that profession. This makes a lot of sense. Now, what did the fuqaha, what did the scholars of fiqh say about uh, this issue of women plucking their eyebrows? Well, again, the madhahib have differed over this issue. And yes, there is no question that many ulama uh, took this hadith and they considered it to be copy and paste and literal and they said, khalas, this is what it is. And there's no problem with that opinion. And as I will conclude, there is, there is no doubt, there is no doubt that that is the safer opinion. There is no doubt that you're getting out of any controversy. But, there have been alternative voices from the very beginning of time. Our mother Aisha is the first one to set this entire paradigm. And are we going to accuse her of not following uh, the sunnah uh, in this regard? And again, the point being that we have this controversy from the very beginning of time. Even if you don't agree with it, at least respect it. At least know that it exists and understand that there are uh, many ulama who have held the other view. In fact, the great scholar Imam Ahmad, uh, he had a very interesting view in this regard. Imam Ahmad uh, said that what is prohibited is the plucking of the eyebrow. In his opinion, uh, he said if a woman shaves it or later Hanbali scholars said that if she dyes it, for example, such that it's no longer seen, you know, then it would be permissible. So uh, the, the Imam Ahmad was asked about this as uh, Ibn uh, as Al-Khallal says in Kitab Al-Waquf Wa-Tarajjul Min Wasal Imam Ahmad that uh, Imam Ahmad was asked that should a lady remove the hair of her eyebrows? And Imam Ahmad said, uh, I don't like that she plucks it but I don't have a problem if she, if she shaves it. This is the Imam of the school. Many of the later people who follow this Imam in our times, they uh, disagree or they don't mention this very fatwa from Imam Ahmad uh, himself. And uh, other great uh, Hanbali scholars even allowed more than this, even allowed more than this. Uh, of course, Ibn Qudama, the famous, uh, yani the, the great uh, author of uh, uh, Al-Mughni, uh, Ibn Qudama also mentions that uh, the prohibition in the hadith is for plucking, not for shaving. He says somebody, if a woman wants to shave, this is Allah. By the way, uh, I have to make the disclaimer here that we're talking about just the eyebrows. As for any other facial hair, uh, there should be no problem with that. So if there's any hair growing, because it is not the natural default of a woman, is to grow is to not grow hair uh, in the chin area or above the lips or whatnot. That hair, of course, it can be removed. The hadith comes about the namisat, uh, and uh, the the interpretation is that namus is to remove the hair, uh, to pluck the hair of the eyebrows. That's how Imam Ahmad understood that the prohibition is to pluck the hair, and he goes, this is a type of uh, basically mutilation or whatnot, and he allowed the shaving of it. Now, this is Imam Ahmad's position. Some Hanbali ulama. Uh, actually allowed for more than this. And of them is the great uh, Alim and the Sheikh and the Zahid and the Saint, Abdul Qadir Al-Jilani. You've all heard of Abdul Qadir Al-Jilani. What many people do not know was that he was a great Alim and he was a Hanbali as well. And in his Ghunia, 
he says that as for the lady, uh, then uh, the madha basically is that that uh, she should not uh, remove her eyebrows, she should not uh, uh, shape her eyebrows. And then he says, وَقِيلَ يَجُوزُ لَهَا ذَلِكَ لِزَوْجِهَا خَاصَةً And others have argued that it is allowed for the lady who is married to shape her eyebrows for her husband if her husband wants her to do that. And also if that she feels that, you know, if she doesn't do so, then her husband might, you know, turn away from her or find interest in other, maybe another marriage or something, and she's gonna have issues or problems. In this case, he says, فَيَجُوزُ لَهَا ذَلِكْ لِمَا فِيهِ مِنَ الْمَصْلَحَةِ It is allowed for her to beautify herself by shaping her eyebrows because there is a clear benefit to be gained over here. Just like, this is still, this is still Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, just like it is allowed for her to wear beautiful clothing and to wear good perfume and to wear uh, the most expensive garments or finery or whatnot and to be playful and to be jesting and jokeful, joking with her husband. All of these are encouraged uh, for her. And therefore, listen to Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, فَعَلَى هَذَا لَعْنُ نَبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ الْمُتَنَمِّصَاتِ عَلَى اللَّوَاتِ أَرَدْنَ بِذَلِكَ غَيْرَ أَزْوَاجِهِنَّ لِلْفُجُورِ بِهِنَّ وَالْمَيْلِ إِدَيْهِنَّ is for the ladies that are doing it for prostitution, for other men to come to them that are not their husbands. Notice, this is the rationale we talked about, right? From the time of the Sahaba, right? Where to pray Asr, looking at the reasoning and then saying, okay, the reasoning is the prostitution. And therefore, when it's not done for that, because it's no longer assigned, that was something that was assigned back then, these days, as you are aware, it is no longer uh, assigned just for one class of ladies. And so, Abdul Qadir al-Jilani says, if a woman does it for her husband, the la'na cannot be upon uh, this lady. And it's not just Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, one of the greatest Hanbali ulama of his era, the great alim and the great scholar Ibn al-Jawzi, he also has this same position. In fact, uh, you should know Ibn al-Jawzi actually has the largest book ever written uh, in the Hanbali school about women overall. He has Ahkamun Nisa, the, the rulings about women. It's like 400, 500 volumes, uh, the edition that I have. And it's all about the rulings of women and the, the, the blessings of women and you know how to treat women, the hadith about women. It's a very interesting book. It's a whole book about basically the treatment or the ahkamun nisa. And he himself, he has a section obviously in this book about this hadith. And Ibn al-Jawzi, and again, I, I ask those brothers that are in their eagerness, they want to just refute by quoting some modern scholars of one land. Would you would you consider Ibn al-Jawzi to be somebody who rejects hadith, to be somebody who's a modernist or progressive? Ibn al-Jawzi, this is Ibn al-Jawzi. Ibn al-Jawzi writes this, listen to this, that the apparent meaning of these ahadith seems to be that the, the prohibition of these things is unconditional. That's the apparent meaning, he says that, it's very clear. And that unconditional understanding is what Ibn Mas'ud himself derived from this. So he admits there is an opinion out there, and that opinion is that there are no circumstances where this is allowed. And that's Ibn Mas'ud's view, excellent. Then he goes, and it is also possible to interpret this hadith in one of three ways, okay? There's another opinion as well. This is Ibn al-Jawzi. The first of them, that this was a sign for prostitutes. This is Ibn al-Jawzi saying, this was a sign for those that are seeking sedu seduced men. So the la'na is for them, not for the action, but for the, the, the lifestyle, what they are uh, doing, number one. Number two, he goes, one can also interpret that 
this is for uh, ladies. Now, again, you have to remember back then, you know, the veil, sometimes even the face covering would be put. And so uh, women, when they're single, they might want to uh, uh, portray themselves to be other than how they look. And so the second is that there is a type of deception that is being done. The lady should be who she is when the suitor comes to see whether she, he wants to propose or not. The both of them should know uh, how they are. So this is the second thing. That there is a type of uh, deception. He goes, that is also not allowed. Number three, he said, uh, for the tattoos, this is not for the numbs, that number three is that there is a permanent change to the creation of Allah, like in the tattoos. This is nothing, nothing to do with the, 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 the thing here. So he goes, as for the, the, the eyebrow thing, so uh, we must interpret it, uh, the, the hadith of the plucking of the eyebrows, we should understand it in one of the first two categories. Either it was meant for uh, women of ill repute, or it was meant for those that are trying to deceive a suitor when they are single, and they want to deceive somebody that they look different than they actually look. Then Ibn al-Jawzi says, my own teacher, Al-Anmati, he would say, and this is the Hanbali Madhab, he would say that if a lady takes from her hair of her face for in order to beautify herself for her husband, right? There is no problem for that. The problem comes when a person comes to propose and he doesn't know what the lady looks like and she tries to deceive him, uh, you know, they might be covering or whatnot, she tries to deceive him in that manner, that would be problematic. Now again, this is Ibn al-Jawzi. What are you gonna do about this, this great scholar Ibn al-Jawzi? That is in the Hanbali Madhab. The Shafi'i school is much more explicit. Actually, this is the fatwa of the Shafi'i school. The Shafi'i school, they understood this hadith by and large to apply to single ladies uh, that are trying to deceive or trying to, to portray themselves other than they are. They explicitly allowed married ladies to beautify themselves for their husbands. And they said, this is of the goals of the Sharia. Why wouldn't we want a lady to beautify herself for her husband. And one of the great icons of the Shafi'i school, Al-Mawardi, who died 450 Hijrah. Of course, he is the author of Al-Hawi Al-Kabir, one of the encyclopedias of Shafi'i Fiqh. He explicitly says that if the lady is ذَاتُ زَوْجٍ تَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ لِلزِّينَةِ عِنْدَ زَوْجِهَا That, فَهَذَا غَيْرُ حَرَامٍ If a lady does this to beautify herself for her husband, this is not haram. Why? He says, لِأَنَّ الْمَرْأَةَ مَأْمُورَةٌ بِأَخْذِ الزِّينَةِ woman is required, she is obliged to beautify herself for her husband. This was also the position of Imam Al-Ghazali, also the Shafi'i scholar, the famous Al-Ghazali, and other scholars as well. Now again, you will find some of the Shafi'i Madhab that uh, they did not uh, they did not allow this, so that's fine as well. But this is the default of the uh, of the position. And in fact, in Al Hafid ibn Hajar himself, the great Shafi'i authority in the Fath al Bari, he basically says that uh, if the uh, husband allows this and approves this, then it is something that is allowed to do. It is something that is allowed to do. Therefore, you now have uh, the Shafi'i Madhab as well allowing this. And as for the Malikis, again, you have a number of Malikis uh, allowing this as well. Al-Qadi Iyad, he himself mentions the narration of Aisha about this issue of allowing some people to pluck. And uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Maliki scholar Al-Adawi, he says in Kifayat Al-Talib, that when Nahyu Mahmoolun ala al-Mar'at al-Manhiyyati, 
an isti'mal ma huwa zinatun laha kal mutawaffa anha wal mafqud zawjuha he says this prohibition it will apply to those ladies only those ladies who are not allowed to beautify themselves right so women who are married to their husbands they are obliged to beautify that narration will not apply to them now this and uh, the the same applies in the Hanafi school. You will find a number of authorities. Again, the Fatawa Hindiya of the Hanafi school. It allows the married lady to beautify herself or her husband in this regard. And yes, you will find some Hanafis who also follow Ibn Mas'ud's uh, fatwa that doesn't allow it unconditionally. Now, therefore, uh, to 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 conclude, I will quote you uh, the modern encyclopedia, uh, the the Mosu'a Fiqhiyya, which is a modern encyclopedia written by a, a group of, of ulama that. Uh, uh, volume 15, page 69, they say, the majority of scholars have opined that this prohibition of the hadith is not universal, it's not unconditional. And Ibn Mas'ud and At-Tabari and others, they said it is unconditional. And they said that it is haram in all circumstances. However, the majority said that uh, it is not allowed for a single lady to beautify herself in this regard. As for the married lady, or any lady that requires any type of, you know, uh, if some type of issue has happened, medical issue or whatnot, then there is no problem in her doing that. And uh, they say this is Jumhur al-Fuqaha, the majority uh, of scholars have allowed this uh, because uh, the lady is required or uh, obliged to beautify herself for her uh, husband. Therefore, uh, to conclude this first question, to conclude all of this, we state, the concept of uh, beautification overall is something that without a doubt is allowed for a lady within the confines of the sharia. And to beautify herself for her husband is one of the most important uh, you know, characteristics of women. They want to beautify themselves and they should beautify themselves. And the goals of the sharia would indicate that a woman is beautiful for her husband and the husband is you know, uh, looking good for her, uh, uh, for his wife, and taking care of her. The two of them should have, uh, you know, that love and that care and that comfort with each other. Now, uh, the Sharia, of course, has prohibited certain types of things that are haram. Obviously, uh, you know, you cannot do things that would be uh, permanent, such as a tattoo, because that's a complete uh, change. However, generally speaking. Uh, a woman's personal preferences of hair and makeup and, and, and jewelry and clothing and style, generally speaking, the sharia is silent on that. And so the sharia has allowed the lady to dress up, especially in the privacy of her house in a manner that is pleasing to her husband and vice versa, the husband should do the same. Now this hadith comes along and our scholars from the very beginning of time, Al-Khattabi ibn al-Jawzi, you know, Tahir ibn Ashur, they're trying to understand that even if Sometimes we don't understand Allah's wisdom. That's definitely not a problem. We don't know why we do tawaf seven times. We just sami'na wa ta'na. Totally understandable. But here we have something that, uh, as our scholars say, when the reward or the punishment doesn't fit the crime, we have to think a little bit more. Why would the la'na come on plucking some hair from the face? And that, that question has 
been asked by many great ulama of the past. And the response seems to be very obvious to many ulama. I just quoted you some of them in today's lecture. And that is that the la'na or the curse of Allah was not on the action of plucking the eyebrow. It was on its association with that lifestyle that was well known. Uh, and everybody who did that was known to be of those who practiced that lifestyle. And that's why the la'na came. Now that makes complete sense. Therefore, when the cause does not exist anymore, when a lady is doing it not for that reason, and she's doing it in a halal manner to satisfy her husband, does the same ruling apply? This is where we now see so many great ulama have difference of opinion. And we have the Shafi'i Madhab, and we have Ibn al-Jawzi, and we have uh, Al-Qadi Iyadi of the Malikis, and we have some of the Ahnaf, and we have Imam Ahmad himself, by the way, of course, he did not, uh, to be clear, as I said, Imam Ahmad allowed the shaving, uh, which is, again, if you want it to be Hanbali, then you may follow that position uh, that don't pluck it, the shave it, the point that you will get the same thing done. His point was just, I mean, we don't know why, just Allah has you know, cursed the plucking, so then don't pluck, but do anything else that you want. So uh, again, if you wanted to follow that position. Now, the other position, which is Ibn Mas'ud's position, is of course dominant in one strand of modern Islam that claims to follow uh, the Salaf. And that's not a problem. There's no problem following that, that strand or that um, interpretation because Ibn Mas'ud was also the one who followed it. My issue or my complaint or my criticism is in the condemnation of the other opinion as having no merit whatsoever. And this is the problem of basically fanaticism and intolerance. I've just quoted you great ulama from the past. These were not, you know, uh, modern people who are liberal and Western or taking from the Kufars or America or England. These are great ulama. Ibn al-Jawzi, as I said, from within the Hanbali tradition and all of these ulama, but, and again, as usual, this is a smaller lecture. And so, bottom line, if you wish to follow the Shafi'i position and many other ulama for the married lady to beautify herself for the sake of her husband, uh, then inshallah you have great precedence and there should be no problem in that. And if you wanted to follow the more conservative opinion and you wish to be on the safer side and err on the side of caution and follow Ibn Mas'ud's position in this regard rather than Aisha's position, you definitely have precedence and that's something that definitely, again, no problem in doing that. But respect the other position, understand the other position is there. Now that having been said, uh, none of the scholars allowed it for uh, the lady that was not doing it for her husband. So please understand this point. Let us stick with our tradition and not uh, you know, completely change it for absolutely no reason. None of the scholars allowed it for the lady to beautify herself for people that are not basically her husband. So you understand this point here, that we're not gonna open that door. We're talking about married women to beautify themselves for for their husbands, then inshallah, there is concession from the time of Aisha radiallahu anha. And other than that, uh, definitely we should stick with uh, the uh, traditions as much as possible. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. أحال النار حول خليله روحا وريحانا بقولك كون